<laughs> Today's psalm scripture is Psalm 4. Psalm of David. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress and have mercy on me when you hear my prayer. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin when you are in your beds. Search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Lord, let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. The word of the Lord. Um, I should have probably said, hi, my name is Troy, half an hour ago. Hello, my name is Troy. Happy to be one of the pastors here. Um, here's a really quick glimpse of the ground that I plan to cover today. For those of you who like a roadmap, who want to know where we're at on the journey, I talked to somebody recently who said, I've moved all of my reading to on a Kindle because it tells me how many pages are left. Um, like, I need to know... When am I close to the end? So if that's you, here's how you will know I'm getting close to the end, all right? This is the, basically, it's your typical sermon structure, covering art, lament, confidence, sleep, metaphysics, and song. So there you go. Um, let's begin. Uh, I want to begin today with a painting. Um, this painting is called... Self-Portrait with Bandaged Ear. And it's by Vincent Van Gogh, that tortured, tragic painter who uh, committed suicide at the age of 37 in 1890. Van Gogh was this prolific painter, but during his lifetime, he was considered a failure. He sold nothing. He was a failure during his lifetime. His life is chronicled in a big batch of, a big collection of letters that he wrote with his brother Theo. And it gives you a glimpse when you read through these letters of Van Gogh's uh, creative impulses, but also you get a glimpse into his struggle just to live daily life. His story is really fascinating. But my guess is that most of us, when we think about Van Gogh at all, we think about one episode in his life. He was having an argument with another artist, and the details get a little fuzzy, but when those artists finished this particular fight and they parted company, Van Gogh took a straight razor to his own ear. And eventually then he takes that said ear and he brings it to a local prostitute as presumably as some overture of love. And then 
he goes into the hospital. Physically, he has to recover. And then he enters another kind of hospital. He enters a mental institution a couple of different times. Not long after one of those stays in a mental facility, Van Gogh paints this picture, self-portrait with bandaged ear. I think this painting is so fascinating because I cannot for the life of me imagine why someone would paint it. Think about it. Think about a painting. What's in a painting? It's whatever the painter, whatever the artist chooses to include. Painting is different than a photograph. A photograph historically, well, before every single one of us had photo editing capabilities at the ready. Historically, a photograph has simply captured what is. No commentary, no omissions, just captures reality. But a painting is very different. A painting includes whatever the artist wants. It could represent absolute reality or not. Whatever the artist chooses to include is what we see. What did this artist choose to include in the painting? He chose to capture a moment of embarrassment. He captured a low point, maybe the lowest of low points in his life. He captures this moment where he mutilates himself. This is a portrait of woundedness. I cannot figure out why this artist, frankly, why anyone would ever put on display this kind of thing, why they would ever volunteer, why they would ever be so vulnerable and self-effacing. And I've had these kinds of thoughts, I've had these kinds of questions throughout the summer as we've looked at the Psalms. Because in the Psalms, we get glimpses regularly of this kind of voluntary vulnerability and honesty. We get writers who are admitting to some problematic behavior. Writers who are saying out loud some troublesome desires. We have writers who are talking with a kind of plain spokenness and a kind of honesty about what they want God to do and to be. And there have been times when we're looking at these Psalms, I have felt uncomfortable. I've felt kind of shocked by how plain and vulnerable they are. But most of the time, I've felt really convicted. I felt convicted because the Psalms, the Psalms, con they confront this culture that we live in. This culture that encourages us to curate only the most presentable parts of our lives. This culture that is, it's hashtag always filtered, right? Always filtering out the rough edges and the blemishes 
and the parts that are not as presentable, the parts that may be showing off vulnerability and weakness. This is the culture that we're in, and this cultural influence, it translates not simply to the ways that we behave on social media. This influences the ways that you and I know it or not. It influences the way you and I approach and interact with God, our maker. And the Psalms confront that. They give us an image and a picture of vulnerability and honesty. Psalm 4, where we're going to park today, this does something similar. It, it's another challenging psalm. It's, it, it gives us this picture of vulnerability and honesty, and thereby Psalm 4 encourages us to pay attention to the ways that we approach God. Notice, notice that Psalm 4 has moments of honest lament in it. Already in verse 2, towards the very beginning, we get that prototypical phrase that's associated with lament. How long? How long? Because stuff is going down. There's distress, there's shame, there's mention of false gods, there's delusion. And the writer, David, he begins Psalm 4 with this plea, plea for God to answer, asking God not to ignore the situation, asking God not to be silent. And then the intensity of this lament, it rises until we get to verse 6. Where it says, many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Throughout the Old Testament, God's people have been waiting. They've been waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. The promise of joy and of peace and of restoration to be realized. They're waiting. Things here are bad. And a lot of people are wondering, who is going to fix this mess? Who's going to deliver on what was promised to our ancestors so long ago? In this psalm, David sings with a kind of directness and a kind of vulnerability that, frankly, I so rarely imitate in my own life. Give me relief. Hear my prayers. Answer me. But here's the thing about Psalm 4. It's not just a psalm of lament. In fact, I would say it's not even primarily a psalm of lament. The dominant mood of Psalm 4, if we look at it carefully, the dominant mood of Psalm 4 is confidence. It's hope. It's all over the place in Psalm 4. We get a little clue, a little glimpse into that confidence um, when David, right at the beginning of verse 1, says, Answer me when I call you my righteous God. So when David uses this word righteous to describe God, he is actually expressing confidence and hope. 
He's appealing to God in light of God's righteousness. Here's what we mean by righteousness. One of the ways we come to understand righteousness is that God is consistent and God is absolute in all the ways that God acts. You could say it this way. God does what God promises. That's what we mean when we say that God is righteous. God does what God promises. And this is why David in this one psalm is able to lament how broken and how distorted things are. And at the same time, he can say in verse 3, know this, that when I call, God will answer me. Because God does what God promises. God is consistent and absolute in all of God's actions. And just like the lament reached its climax in verse 6, so this tone of confidence and hope, it crescendos to verse 6 as well. And we see this phrase, let the light of your face shine on us. Now this is a phrase that those who were hearing this would have certainly identified. They would certainly have connected with. They would have associated this phrase with this priestly blessing that was given so long ago. We find in number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So what we have here is we have David pointing to this ancient blessing given to God's people as a way of speaking to his modern contemporary lament. It's David saying something like, many people are wondering how this is all going to shake down. People are wondering how this is going to get fixed. So God, please be faithful. Faithful to the promises that you made to our ancestors. Please be the one who blesses us. Please be the one who restores us with confidence and with hope. This idiom, this poetic phrase, the, the light of your face, this is a way that, um, that communicates and talks about God's presence. And so when David is confidently appealing to this long ago made promise, he's claiming it, but he's also asking that God would intervene, that God's presence would be known in an undeniable way, that God would enter into the mess with God's very presence. Family, one of the ways that we live into being a Jesus people which is a key part of our vision as a church. One of the ways that we live faithfully into that vision is faithfully and honestly engaging both lament and hope and confidence. We must do both. We must be a people who, like David, name all of the ways that the world does not look or behave as God intended it. 
We should boldly ask that God would intervene, that God would hear, and that God would answer our prayers. And we do all of these things with confidence and hope because we believe and we know that God does what God promises. That's one of the ways we live into being a Jesus people. We lament and we are people of hope and confidence. Can you see where I'm at on my little table of contents? You know, we're getting close. I want to spend the rest of the sermon talking about the final verse of Psalm 4. In peace, I lie down and sleep for you alone, Lord. Make me dwell in safety. First, I want to talk a little bit about sleep. Oh, sleep. Remember sleep? Um, In his wonderful book called The Body, Bill Bryson talks about sleep and he said, sleep is the most mysterious thing that humans do. Medical people know that sleep is important and necessary for us, but they can't figure out why. And they can't totally understand or explain what sleep does. The average person will give up about a third of his or her life to sleeping. Doesn't feel like that, particularly right now as a young, as a a, a new parent, but a third of your life will be spent unconscious. Did you know, did you know that during sleep, you experience paralysis at some points? Now, obviously, your heart and your lungs keep working, but the muscles that control your bodily movements at points during sleep, they are all restrained. You are paralyzed. Take comfort. And at the same time, many of us experience what's called a myoclonic One of us is not a medical person. The myoclonic jerk. That's that experience while you're asleep where you suddenly feel like you're falling. You know this thing? You're lying in a bed, not moving, and suddenly you feel like you're falling from something. That's a myoclonic jerk. At points you're paralyzed, and at other points you feel like you're falling off a mountain. It's a weird thing, sleep. I think it's crazy that some of you are able to wake up at predetermined times without an alarm clock. Some of you have that? Do some of you have that gift? It's, it's incredible. Your sleeping mind in some way is aware of what's going on in the waking world outside of your skull. How is More soberly, if you go long enough without sleep, you will die. December 1963, a high school student named Randy Gardner stayed awake for 264 straight hours, 11 days and 24 minutes. 
for a school science project. Try that now, by the way. School science project. Stay awake as long as you can. He has the record for the person who's voluntarily stayed awake and gone without sleep the longest. Eleven some days. I notice as I'm talking about sleep, there are yawns all over the room. (laughs) It's incredible. The Bible deals with sleep a lot. And I think one of the ways that sleep functions in the Bible is sometimes it's literal, sometimes it's a metaphor. I think sometimes sleep is an image of being completely vulnerable. Sleep is this image of powerlessness. It's an image of being unguarded. It's an image of being susceptible. Have you ever seen a picture of yourself while you're asleep? It's unnerving, isn't it? We never look the way that we do awake like we do when we're asleep. Mouth wide open, all kinds of strange contorted bodily positions, right? Weird facial expressions. It's unnerving. When you see yourself, you realize you are unguarded. You are vulnerable. Um, I don't have nearly the courage to show you a picture of myself asleep, but I will show you this. Picture of Maggie when she was 13 days old, taking a nap, and Liz captured us both in the same position. In the Bible, sleep often demonstrates a person's being vulnerable before God. I think about Elijah. I think about Elijah asleep under a bush after he's had that encounter with the prophets of Baal. Or think about Jesus asleep in the boat while the disciples are losing their minds because there's a storm. I think both of these are examples for us of people who are vulnerable before God. And David here in Psalm 4, he gives us a picture of sleeping right at the very end. And he describes sleep, it's a kind of sleep that is peaceful because God is present. Remember, remember David's a king. And so David's used to sleeping inside of structures, Structures that are fortified and secure. David likely had some sort of military might guarding him while he would sleep. And yet, David still says that it's God alone who provides peace and safety when David is at his most vulnerable. It's not military might. It's not secure fortress. It's God alone who protects and brings safety. This psalm, Psalm 4, it continually highlights and celebrates what God alone can give and provide. Relief and mercy and light and joy and peace and safety. Thanks be to God. Now, let me briefly talk about this phrase, dwell in safety and metaphysics, the part you've been most looking forward to, I'm sure. First, dwell in safety. It's a phrase that's used 
lots of times in the Old Testament. In fact, if you want, um, here are just a couple of other examples, a couple other spots, key spots in the Old Testament, if you want to study a little bit more of where this phrase plays a predominant role. Uh, Most of the times when we see dwell in safety in the Old Testament, it's pointing to the future. In Deuteronomy, it's talking about the God's people will eventually cross the River Jordan and they will dwell in safety. The other examples that I have here, they're pointing off to the future when God's rule and reign will be fully realized. The difference, though, in Psalm 4 is that David is talking about something much more immediate. There's a reality that David said is available now. We don't have to wait for the future. David sleeps in peace because God's presence makes safety possible now. Not simply one day off in the future. But that safety, dwelling in safety, is actually possible now. Okay, metaphysics. Metaphysics is the philosophical field of study that concentrates on the fundamental reality of things. How many of you have already fallen asleep? (laughs) Being, identity, substance. Now, metaphysics can be kind of abstract and To be totally honest, I've just told you everything that I know about metaphysics. I'm saying it because St. Augustine, who was an early church theologian, he died in 430. St. Augustine, he utilized and tried to capture the metaphysical um, thoughts and ideas of his day to talk about and to describe what God is like. So St. Augustine said this. One of the ways that he described God is he says, God is being itself. Metaphysically, God is being itself. Every example or expression of being that you might find in the created world is actually finds its source in God who is being itself. Every noble quality, every admirable, every desirable quality there might be also finds its source in being itself. God is the perfect demonstration and embodiment, the purest and most fully realized expression of all of those desirable qualities because God is being itself and everything emanates from there. Now, this perspective, I'm bringing, I have a point. This perspective (laughs) meant that Augustine was constantly looking to the scripture to say, how do we embody qualities and truth in scripture as associated with being itself? So he would regularly say to people, um, we don't talk generically about concepts. We don't talk generically about concepts like justice or kindness not in a generic sort of a way. Instead, he was regularly encouraging people to recognize God as the fullest and purest realization and expression and embodiment of whatever concept you were looking at. Okay, as it relates to Psalm 4, verse 8, Augustine would preach this. David, and therefore all of us, by gracious extension... 
David and all of us, we do not lie down in sleep in some kind of generic peace. That we don't dwell in some kind of non-specific safety. Instead, we all sleep and we all dwell in being itself. We all sleep, we all dwell in the God who is perfect safety and the God who is perfect peace. And this is where confidence comes from in Psalm 4. Because we all sleep, we all rest, we all abide in God's very self, in being itself. Or as the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4 later on, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Not a generic, non-specific peace or safety, but a very specific peace is located somewhere, or better yet, peace is located someone in Jesus Christ. That's where the confidence comes from. Okay, let me end more personally, a little less philosophically, and move towards a song, because Psalm 4 means a lot to me. Um, Back in late 2019 and early 2020, when we found out that Liz was pregnant, we experienced a new kind of anxiety that we had never known before. We were very well aware that there are no guarantees with pregnancy, that a lot of things can happen, and they could happen at any time. Personally, I was facing the reality that I was going to be a first-time dad in my late 40s, and I have deep grooves, deep patterns and habits, and I had no idea how I could shake out of those things and make more space. How was, it, how was I going to change? What was it going to take? I didn't have imagination for that. I didn't know how that was going to shake down. And then in March of 2020, the world broke with COVID. And if you remember, if you can rewind the tape, nobody knew what that meant. Nobody knew Nobody knew how COVID was going to affect pregnant women. And nobody knew how COVID might affect babies who were developing and growing. Um, Every class and preparatory thing that we had signed up for, they all got canceled. We stopped seeing other people in person for months. There was a space where we, were, we didn't know if I could go to the hospital or be in the delivery room. And so every night, Liz and I would sit in bed and we would speak out loud all the things that were freaking us out. 
the ways that we were scared and this new anxiety that we were facing. And during this season, um, we took up a new practice, a new practice for us. We started to pray Compline. Compline is the final prayer service that religious communities hold. It's night prayer. It's the prayer, the last thing that you would speak at the end of the day. And we were following just a simple order from the Church of England. We would read a psalm. We would pray a couple of brief prayers, and then we would speak a blessing. And the psalm that is attached to Compline is Psalm 4. Here's a little bit of what we would pray together each night. We would pray, in peace we will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make us dwell in safety. Abide with us, Lord Jesus, for the night is at hand and the day is now past. As the night watch looks for the morning, so do we look for you, O Christ. And then during the day, I started, I started humming around the house. This where we were, I started humming a little a melody, and then I started attaching that little melody to um, some of these words, to these first couple of words of this prayer, and to um, the words of Psalm 4, verse 8. And eventually this little melody turned into a refrain. And um, that refrain we now include uh, into the bedtime routine of Maggie. So every night one of us sings this little refrain over her. And I want to teach it to you. And I want to invite you to sing along. But I want you to consider when we do this, this question, where for you is vulnerability very real right now? Where in your life do you sense there is something at risk? Where do you feel powerless? Where do you feel susceptible? And as we sing this, Consider these words of David to be an invitation to turn to the one whose presence alone can provide you safety and peace. Be mindful as we sing that whatever it is for you that you would consider vulnerable, that you would invite the one who keeps every promise to draw you near. In peace I will lie down and sleep for you alone. Make me dwell in safety. Would you sing with him? In peace I will lie down. 
to this table where every week we're invited and we're reminded of specific peace, specific safety, not generic, specific peace and safety. So I say to you, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. So let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And in a spirit of thanksgiving, we pray together. How right and a good and a joyful thing at all times and in all places it is to give thanks to you, God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you and we join our voices with angels and archangels and the entire company of heaven who forever surround the throne, who are forever singing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so, Holy Spirit, would you remind us today of this gift of peace and safety? And would you infuse in these simple elements, make them for us a spiritual food that we might be nourished and encouraged, that we might be spurred on to faithfully follow and to more deeply trust in the goodness of God, expressed in the person, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And amen. Um, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was having a meal with his disciples, and he took the elements, he took the bread, and he broke it. And he said to them, this is my body and it is broken for you, so take it and eat it. It is broken for you. Take it and eat it. In the similar way, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is the new covenant, the new promise represented in my blood. So take it and drink it. And whenever we drink and we eat these elements, we take this meal, what we're doing is we're telling the story again. We're reliving the promise that God has made. 
we're entering once again the peace and safety that is offered to us in Christ. And we do our best to retell this story using these simple little phrases that have been passed down to us from generation to generation. So we tell this story together, saying Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So come and eat, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Tables in these couple of places. If you want to write a prayer, put it into the prayer wall. Our staff is committed to praying with you and for you. If you want to pray, I'll be over in this area if it would be helpful for anyone. But let's uh, enter into this peace anew in these next couple of minutes.